Quick note before we get going, um, throughout this episode, we'll be talking about pictures and paintings a bit. If you want to see them yourself, head on over to collectinghistories.com and look for the episode. Bharat Mata Ki! Bharat Mata Ki! Bharat Mata Ki! I'm Claire Erickson, and you are listening to Collecting Histories, part of my senior thesis for a Bachelor of Arts at Minerva School's Akijiai. In this series, we look at national narratives from different angles and perspectives in an attempt to understand the arbitrary divisions of our world. In this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the very symbols which constitute the heart of national narratives, the place they've come to have for us. We'll talk about how and why they're constructed, and what effects they have on our perceptions of nations and communities. For this episode, we'll take a slightly different approach by looking closer at national symbols and national art, rather than examine a national narrative as a whole. But we're also going to nestle next to a woman I've come to be rather fond of, despite it all. I don't think I'm alone in feeling all of the feels when some songs pop up on my Spotify queue. We built this city by Starship, anyone? We built this city. We built this city on rock and roll. Built this city. Blast that and some great speakers by yourself, and I dare you to resist dancing. These feelings are triggered by specific elements in the music, such as rhythm, scales, pitch, dynamics, harmony, texture, etc. I always put on We Built the City when I'm working up the courage for something, because of its fast and resolute pace. Upward scale, consonant chords, and easy melody makes me feel like I can do anything. Why am I talking your ears off about my favorite going out song? Because the feelings I feel when listening to Starship are often the same ones we are meant to feel when listening to our national anthems. Through the use of musical fundamentals fitting the goal sentiments such as pitch, pace, and chords, they're supposed to make us feel inspired, touched, and resolute. This is Janaganamana, India's national anthem, adopted officially in 1950. You might not understand what it says, and I'll get to that, but just listening to the musical component of it Take a second to think about how it makes you feel. The harmonies supporting the main singers are light, consonant, and have a longing character to them that almost draws me in physically to the slow-paced melody. This longing is further emphasized by the sliding scales in that ornate motion which is typical for most music styles originating from the subcontinent. 
The drums mark the resolute and heavy rhythm, where the first note in each bar is marked by the resonating bass drum. The melody fills me with a sense of hope in its upward scale, where each note seems to build on each other in the pursuit of success and ascendance. Now, there are other versions of this song, some faster and less longing, such as this one. And some much more smooth than slow-paced, such as this one. Regardless of the musical characteristics, each version has the same lyrics. Janaganamana is based on a Brahmo rhythm in highly Sanskritized Bengali, composed and scored by Nobel laureate Rabindranath Tagore in 1911. Lucky for me, but unfortunately based on the reality of British colonialism, Tagore also provided an official English translation to the song, which is this one. Thou art the ruler of the minds of all people. Dispenser of India's destiny. Thy name rouses the hearts of Punjab, Sindh, Gujarat, and Maratha, of the Dravida, Orissa, and Bengal. It echoes in the hills of the Vindhyas and Himalayas, mingles in the music of Yamuna and Ganga, and is chanted by the waves of the Indian Sea. They pray for thy blessings and sing thy praise. The saving of all people waits in thy hand. Thou dispenser of India's destiny. Victory, victory, victory to thee. The lyrics speak of a ruler of the minds of all people, dispenser of India's destiny, who touches the heart of the different regions of what used to be part of British India. Punjab, Sindh, Gujarat, Maratha, Dravida, Urissa, and Bengal. It speaks of the ruler's name, which seems to resonate and emerge throughout the mountains and rivers of the nation. The last line is a repeated jaya he, or a cry for victory to India. Words such as pray, destiny, and praise lead my mind to a religious ruler, something spiritual. In reality, though, the subject of who this ruler is is a hot debate in India to this day. As already mentioned, Janaganamana was written by a Nobel laureate, Rabindranath Tagore, in 1911, which just so happens to have been the year when King George V of England became the only king emperor to ever visit India. Furthermore, the song was first performed at a Congress party conference in Kolkata, which was held to welcome the king, indicating that this ruler and dispenser of India's destiny in fact was their colonial master, Britain. Many therefore argue the song to be inherently anti-colonialist, hailing the colonial order. However, these criticisms are, according to Indian historian Sabyasachi Bhattacharya, quote, unhistorical. Bhattacharya and his co-authors argue in the book Tagore and Nationalism that at the time when he wrote and composed Janaganamana, 
Tagore was in favor of the contemporary and early nationalist aspirations of Bengal, which later was to develop and spread all over India. To complicate the whole situation a little bit, however, Tagore did change his opinion of nationalism after 1917 and the prolonged violence of the First World War, which was arguably based in and triggered by nationalist aspirations, like many contemporary thinkers such as Albert Einstein and Romain Rowland, he started to criticize the quote, organizing selfishness of nationalism in the West, and opposed the introduction of this foreign concept in his home country of India. What he did not oppose, however, was the humanity, or inherent values present in the nationalist struggles in the West, speaking of a quote, conflict between the spirit of the West and nation of the West. With this in mind, he argued that India did not have to adopt the concept of the nation in place of its valuing of humanity and God, its spirit. One sentence stood out to me in Bhattacharya's chapter of Tagore Nationalism. Bhattacharya writes that Tagore was one of the first to ever coin the idea of plurality as central to the Indian nation. He writes, Modern India's claim to nationhood was fundamentally flawed, for she had failed to retain the unifying spirits which kept diverse people together for countries, and had allowed conflicts between faiths and caste division to countervail that spirit. Wait, did you catch that word? Spirit. The spirit which Tagore speaks of is the spirit of unity. We can see that the aim of Bharatvarsha the idealist and slightly mythical definition of the cultural and nationalist extent of India, has always been to establish unity amidst differences or diversities, to bring to a convergence different parts, and to internalize within her soul the unity of the severalty. That is to say, to comprehend the inner union between externally perceptible differences without eliminating the uniqueness of each element. According to Tagore, the spirit of India is the eternal truth for her children, something which can be found in the inner self, something that's inherently moral and reasonable. As soon, however, as one looks outside oneself for the nation, it becomes shrouded in darkness, ruled by greed, acquisition, and anger. Seeing it this way, the ruler of the minds of all people, dispenser of India's destiny, might very well refer to the spirit a spirit which can only be found inside, inside India. Well, we say namaste, um, but that's more to elders. I'm talking to Sohit in his apartment in Buenos Aires. He graciously agreed to turn off the AC for the benefit of my microphone, so we're both sweating a little bit. To people of your own generation, you just usually don't say namaste, you just say... Um, how are you? You just start with how are you? Sohit is one of my classmates at Minerva. I'm a, I'm a Punjabi. Um, who the people who traditionally belong to the state of Punjab? I would I would call myself a North Indian, specifically a Punjabi. But he grew up in Delhi. So grew up on the east co east border of Delhi. Yeah. <laughs> India as a nation in its entirety is incredibly diverse. The constitution recognizes 22 languages as official, but the official census shows more than 110 languages spoken throughout the nation, and cultural practices vary widely throughout the subcontinent. But Delhi is the melting pot of it all, an India in miniature, if you can call a city with a population of 29 million miniature. Within the context of Delhi, 
um, I think everybody's a minority because Delhi is one of the most diverse cities you could be in. There's people from all over India, all over India in Delhi. Sohit says that. I feel like I was a minority in my society because all of my friends were South Indians, apparently. And I was this only North Indian guy. Um, so, which also causes a lot of confusions, fights and whatever. But at the end of the day, we're all friends. At the end of the day, they're all friends. What Sohit just said lies at the core of the Indian national identity, unity and diversity. It means the recognition that there are differences, but that this in itself is something to be proud of and to unite over. And to most Indians today, the national anthem speaks to the unity and diversity which India prides itself with. The idea that Indians from all across the nation sings the same name, namely India, vote in the same election, and live under the same historical narrative, the story of India. The pluralism of the Indian state, and the patrimony of the different communities it serves, is represented by the naming of the regions, landscapes, and terrestrial features, which all praise the same ruler or spirit. Even though we're people from more than a thousand ethnicities and more than 600 languages, they just live together at the end of the day. Um, I mean, it causes a lot of problems. Things are slow just because everybody disagrees with everyone. But there's an agreement to disagreement. And this agreement to disagreement, and the spirit of unity and diversity, is no better defined than in the concept, myth, and story of Mother India, or Paramata. A figure emerging right around the time when Tagore wrote the lyrics to Yanaganamana, at the first frustrated breaths of the Swadeshi movement on the eve of the proposed Bengal partition in 1905, a movement which was to influence and to some extent merge with subsequent movements leading up to India's independence in 1947. But what's even more is that Tagore himself painted one of the first images of Bharat Mata ever made, a light painting in watercolor of a young Indian woman wearing an orange sari covering body and hair, as custom instructs. She has four arms, a common feature of deities in Hindu art. India has a long history of civilizations, as is heavily reinforced in all different school systems active in the country. So we would study like the pre-Mughal period in our early ages, like 5th, 6th grade. 7th, um, 8th-ish is more focused on Mughal periods, yeah, during your nature period, 9th and 10th is when you study Indian, the most recent Indian history of independent struggle. So definitely there's records of like bigger empires before um, and like the earliest civilizations, one of them was the Indus Valley civilization. Um, but the biggest, the first biggest empire was the Mauryan Empire, recorded about 2000 years ago. However, India wasn't really India then. Or, I mean... Let me explain. What makes India, India? Its territorial borders, its regime, its flags, religions, etc. And quite frankly, only the presence of Hinduism has remained constant since the heydays of the Mauryan Empire 2000 years ago. Different kingdoms, empires, and princely states have fluctuated in power and geographical coverage since then on the land which today is labeled India or Bharat.
Indian nationalism and the very idea of the Indian nation arose from the struggle for independence from Britain, which had tightened their formal control and rule after what is in India commonly called the First War of Independence, or the Sepoy Rebellion, and in Britain, the Great Mutiny. Um, by 1700s, we, the Britishers had taken full control um, of India. So that's when sort of the British Empire starts, like 1700s. Um, 1857 is when the first war of independence happened. This is where we like, start becoming more precise. We being Sohit's history education. Um, don't remember the exact date, it was August 1857. Um, there was a, there was, there's a lot of like revolutionaries that organized this, but it wasn't successful because we weren't united at that time. It was a very small effort in the northwest part of India. And so after that, their rule grew even stronger because that because they were like, we, we need to break these people up. We don't we don't want to let them unite. Um, so and they had many different strategies to do that. Divide and conquer was one of them. Under British rule, most Indians were excluded from high administrative positions, restricted to certain cars in the trains and arguably most importantly for the early nationalists subject to high taxation and extraction policies favoring the booming industries of the British Isles at the expense of India's industries. For generations, the British Raj had stayed in control of the subcontinent by implementing one of the most classical and ancient governance policies to keep empires intact, divide and conquer. In theory, this aimed to create or perpetuate divides between already existing groups in the area in order to keep them from collaborating against the regime or, as Sir John Strachey, prominent English civil servant in British India, wrote in 1888, to prevent, quote, the growth of any dangerous identity or feeling from community of race, religion, caste, or local feeling. In practice, this policy meant that the British army and administration sent Sikhs to fight Bengal rebellions, furthering this already existing animosity, and that ethnicities deemed loyal to the British, such as Gurkhas and Marathis, were favored for army and government positions as opposed to people from other groups. This extractive and divisive foreign rule, which excluded millions of people born to non-white parents on a systematic basis, seemed more and more out of place for an increasing number of educated people as time passed. But in order for India's nationalists to succeed in getting rid of the British Raj, they needed all of its subjects to stand up against the regime. This is where Mother India, Paramata, enters the picture. In 1908, at the height of the Swadeshi movement, literally translated to by India, protesting the British division of Bengal into East and West on the basis of religious divides, the colonial police raids a regular meeting place for the Dhaka-based Anushulan Samiti, a notorious secret society known for its violent militancy. The place is left in a complete mess, but when the police searches the premises in the aftermath, they find a framed and glazed portrait of a woman in flowing garments hanging on the wall of the entrance. Her beautiful sari forms the shape of India, or perhaps rather the subcontinent. This is Manu. I'm Manu. Manu's from Kerala, South India, and has just been complaining to me that he's losing his ability to pronounce things in his mother tongue, Malayalam. He's looking at a picture of a terracotta figurine from 1911, which I put in front of him. I love how she has four arms. The figurine he's looking at is of a woman dressed in a flowy red sari standing in a turquoise sea. So it's, it's not just any human lady that's representing the concept of India. 
instead it matches that of the idols of our goddesses in hindu mythology um she has four arms she's holding a trishul which is like a, tri- a trident like weapon um she has um a crown she's actually holding a rudraksh mala which is like a holy thing in hinduism and she's standing on the ocean whoever made this is trying to tell us or trying to the, um, tell the person who's seeing this that bharat mata is not just a representation of india it's more it's it's equivalent to your goddess it's a land that deserves your respect your worship and you should be sincerely dedicated to your country and be patriotic so it's a very it's it's quite a strong symbol of patriotism over there the raid in 1908 marks the first time the cartographed body of mother india leaves a trace in the archives of history as it gets documented in an official but confidential report already an important symbol of anti-colonial nationalist movements across india mother india is a real threat to the british raj and its control over the subcontinent But what is it that makes her so dangerous to the British regime and powerful to the Indian independence fighters? Indian nationalism and national narratives, as seen in the national history curriculum of Indian high schools, like to look back at the millennia of influential and sophisticated civilizations of the subcontinent. The Mauryan Empire, the Indus Valley civilizations, as well as the more recent Mughal Empire play an important role in establishing the Indian nation as something pre-modern, something inherently true and historically established. But the reality is that India as a nation was born in opposition to the British rule some 2 decades after the first war of independence or Great Mutiny of 1858. Not only was it born in opposition to the British rule, but was born through adopting the nationalist ideals which created the United States of America and which caused many changes in the European political landscape after the spring of nations in 1848. But in order for India to be able to fully adopt the ideals of nationalism, they needed all of India to unite. Reacting against decades, centuries of divide and conquer strategies from the British, unity could be seen as the antidote to the curse that was the British. And in order to achieve that, they needed cultural symbols for the people to look to, symbols and icons which offer a sense of collective identity as well as a frame of collective action. The symbols are of essential importance in creating the idea of the nation as it attempts to establish itself as pre-modern, as they carry elements of the past in a hybrid form which attempts to overcome contradictions which are inherent in imagined communities and practices of othering. Thus India invented itself through the invention of icons such as Bharat Mata, Mother India, and she helped India establish itself in the hearts and minds of millions of Indians. India is definitely not the only nation to have a fictional woman be infused with a personality, character, and virtue of the nation. Britannia, as we'll talk more about in the next episode, has for more than a thousand years been portrayed as the personification of British identity. at times submissive to the romans and at times glorious in her successes her posture attire weapons wary thereafter the united states have their lady liberty and argentina to some extent have their immortalized and glorified evita and as with all national symbols and icons her character appearance and portrayal depends on who paints her who needs her and who's watching her 
In other words, the author, distributor, and audience matters to how she's presented and perceived. But her mere existence has some inherent functions or effects for the nation. First of all, she's visual. She's not a long text composed by nice and lofty adjectives of her virtues. No, she's most often a beautiful Indian woman clad in flowy saris, either with her hair modestly covered, loose and flowing in the wind, or adorned by ornate crowns. She has a face and eyes that meet yours as you look at her. She's both humanly relatable and unreachable in her divinity. All in all, she's someone who the large masses could relate to, as she's both the nurturing mother who protects and needs protection, and the divine goddess of the temples they go to for comfort and faith. And in a society where less than 10% of the population could read and write, she needed to be visual in order to be widely understood and relatable. Second of all, her body is often cartographed. Her sari is draped in the shape which the nationalists wanted to see as the Indian nation, independent and self-determining. Going back to the little terracotta figurine from 1911. Because the way the um, woman and her clothing has been you know, laid out seems to match that of the shape of India. And not just India, I think that's something that's <laughs> intriguing. We can see that it's from 1911, so clearly it has Pakistan in it, uh, Myanmar, Bangladesh, Nepal. Um, so the way her red sari has been, you know, molded, molded, sculpted, um, resembles the wholesome continent. So pretty sure that the person who made this is like, this is India, she's representing India, if that wasn't pretty clear. As you might then realize, the early nationalist movement saw India as encompassing pretty much the entire subcontinent, as well as Afghanistan and Burma. In this manner, she's not only encoded with the physical features of the nation, but is educating her audience as to what she stands for and represents. Thirdly, she is not British. Her traditional, culturally modest, and spiritual appearance puts her in direct contrast to the uniformed white man who ruled the continent at the time. Where the white man had achieved dominance through military power as well as divide and conquer, Mother India stood straight as a symbol of traditional legitimacy and homely strength. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, she becomes the emotional symbol or icon to emotionally relate to, something to hang on the wall and look at in dark times. She personifies the dream of traditional and culturally strong India. She is unity and diversity, the mother of India, someone who gives strength to all of the nation and someone who tells you to be strong for something bigger. She becomes the spirit of India, the soul of the land. As I was researching about the symbols of Indian nationalism, I came across this beautiful song. At the time, I didn't think too much about it, but I want you to hear it. This is Vanda Mataram, the national song of India. Not to be confused with Janaganamana, the national anthem of India. Mm-hmm. 
The lyrics are in Sanskrit, the old language of the thousands of years old Hindu scripts, forming the foundation of the religion. And the song title translates to, I praise thee, mother. In English, the text goes, Mother, I bow to thee, rich with thy hurrying streams, bright with orchard gleams, cool with thy winds of delight, dark fields waving mother of might, mother free. Glory of moonlight dreams over thy branches and lordly streams, clad in thy blossoming trees, mother giver of ease. Laughing low and sweet, mother, I kiss thy feet. Speaker sweet and low, mother, I bow to thee. Mother, the nation and the land, mother, I bow to thee. Does this remind you of something? Thou art the ruler of the minds of all people, dispenser of India's destiny. Thy name rouses the hearts of Punjab, Sindh, Gujarat and Maratha, of the Dravida, Orissa and Bengal. It echoes in the hills of the Vindhyas and Himalayas, mingles in the music of Yamuna and Ganga, and is chanted by the waves of the Indian Sea. Both songs sing of the features of India, the romanticized hills, valleys, and rivers of the subcontinent. They praise the name of the spirit, the ruler of the minds of all people, dispenser of India's destiny, or the mother, perhaps Mother India? Tagore spoke of the spirit of the Indian nation, a spirit that can only be found within. He speaks of something which will bring unity amongst differences something which will ensure the, quote, inner union between externally perceptible differences without eliminating the uniqueness of each element. Mother India as an icon has been uniting people all over India since her birth to the Swadeshi movement. She's become the symbol of what India is and what it should be. She can be this powerful, emotional symbol because she can be whatever her creator wants her to be. She can be fierce and carry a rifle in the fight for what she cares about. She can be soft and fragile, her feet caressed by the lotus flower of Sri Lanka. And she can be the caring mother who cradles her children in her arms. But in the 2014 Indian election, something happened which reflects a shift in Indian nationalism. Since the signing of the Indian Constitution in 1950, one of the formally guiding characteristics of the national identity has been the secularity of the state and the freedom of religion it brings to its citizens. In fact, the very first sentence of the preamble to the Indian Constitution proclaims that, quote, we, the people of India, solemnly resolve to constitute India into a sovereign, socialist, secular, democratic republic. However, since the election of the right-wing Nationalist Party BJP in 2014, things have been changing. 
The BJP and Prime Minister Narendra Modi advocates for a particular brand of Indian nationalism, which is commonly known as Hindutva, roughly translated to Hinduness. The most recent development is a CAA, or Citizen Amendment Act. If you've been at all following the news in the past few months, it should have popped up at least once in your feed. In large number, they're defying the curfew and they're saying that they're not ready to, to accept the Citizenship Amendment Bill at any cost. Except the... the CAA asserts that Hindus, or um, rather non-Muslims, at risk of discriminations abroad now are eligible for Indian citizenship. Sounds innocent enough, right? Well, associated with the bill are some scary things like a proposed national registry of citizens in place before 2024, which would not only map all of India's citizens, but also, quote, throw out all of the infiltrators. A more PC wording for throwing out illegal Muslim immigrants. Throughout this process, the BJP has polarized the debate through labeling themselves as nationalist, and anyone going against them as anti-nationalist. And national symbols like the flag, anthem, and, yes, Mother India have been used to establish and strengthen this rhetoric. Remember this? Bharat Mata ki. Bharat Mata ki. Bharat Mata ki. Bande. 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 Jai Hind. Jai Hind. Jai Hind. Paramata, Vandamataram, Jai Hind, Mother India, I praise the mother and victory to India. Mother India, previously a symbol of the unity of diverse India, a tool and symbol used to inspire unity and belonging for people of all religions, cultures, ethnicities in the Indian nation, is now increasingly being used by the BJP and Prime Minister Modi as a front figure for Hindutva and India as the homeland for all Hindus. If the changed connotation of Mother India reflects the conceptual shift of what the Indian nation should mean, the Citizen Amendment Act reflects this shift practically. The BJP is attempting to change the very foundations of India as secular and diverse, and the reactions have been varied. Some applaud this shift as a return to what India should have been in the first place, while some, or more like millions, take to the streets in an attempt to retake the control of the narrative of India and what it should mean. Further, some have recently become uncomfortable with Mother India and the national romantic narrative she's part of, and the deification of India which she symbolizes and inspires. A previously inclusive and inspiring figure of diversity, Mother India has been placed at the center of the most inherent conflict in the Indian nation, dating back to the very start of it. She has become the baton in the race to define Indian identity. You've been listening to Collecting Histories and me, Clara Erickson. For further reading, bibliographies, and some cool graphics, visit our website, collectinghistories.com. This series is part of my capstone project for a Bachelor of Arts at Minerva Schools at KGI. Thanks to Professor Grace Woodsbucket, my advisor, for her invaluable feedback, and to Manu for never seeming to tire of me expressing my love for or asking him questions about Bharat Mata or his national anthem. 
Special thanks to Manu and Sohit for agreeing to be interviewed by me, and to Georgie Bulis Gray for giving me inspiration when looking at the role of the woman in Nations. Music credits are in the bibliography. <laughs>